The opinions and viewpoints expressed in .NET Rocks are not necessarily those of its sponsors or of Microsoft Corporation, its partners, or employees. .NET Rocks is a production of Franklin's Net, which is solely responsible for its content. Franklin's Net, training developers to work smarter. Hey, Rockheads, set up your spruce, stuff your goose, and get loose with the juice. It's time for another stellar episode of .NET Rocks, the internet audio talk show for .NET developers with Carl Franklin and Richard Campbell. This is Lawrence Ryan announcing show number 401 with guest Chris Sells, recorded live Tuesday, November 25th, 2008. .NET Rocks is brought to you by Franklin's Net, training developers to work smarter, and now offering SharePoint 2007 video training with Sahil Malik on DVD, DNR TV style. Order your copy now at www.franklins.net. Support is also provided by Telerik, combining the best in Windows forms and ASP.NET controls with first-class customer service. Online at www.telerik.com. And by Code Magazine the leading independent magazine for .NET developers, online at www.code-magazine.com. And now, the man who was recently found guilty of not putting enough egg in his nog, Carl Franklin. Hey, this is Carl Franklin. Thank you very much. Welcome back to .NET Rocks. Uh, this is show 401 with Chris Sells. Richard's not here. He's uh, in Las Vegas at the moment at another conference, but Chris Sells will be here in a minute, and Richard will be here with me. You know, uh, we had a good time uh, in Montreal, and uh, I do want to apologize, however. We uh, thought we had bleeped the F-bombs in show 400, and apparently something went wrong, and uh, we didn't get those bleeped. I do apologize for sensitive ears. We we usually bleep those things. They our our uh, editors missed that, and uh, we had a problem with republishing it as well. So sorry about that. We'll try to uh, keep it clean next time. Let's get right into better know a framework. <laughs> And today I want to talk about freezable objects in WPF. This is really cool. How, how many times have you wanted an object to be just temporarily immutable? Well, that's what a freezable object is. A freezable object is a special type of object that has two states, unfrozen and frozen. And when it's unfrozen, it's like any other object. When frozen, it's immutable. It can no longer be modified. So basically, if you th take things like a, a brush... It'll have a can freeze property. And if uh, it can freeze is true, you can call the freeze method on it. Now you can create your own freezable classes by deriving from freezable. And uh, it's also thread safe when it's immutable, right? Because a frozen freezable object can be shared across threads. 
Also, it has change notification through an event structure. Um, this is really important when you start to uh, use WPF and you find out that it's at the core of a lot of fundamental objects. So check it out, Freezable, the Freezable class in WPF, system.windows.freezable. We're going to let Richard do the email when he gets back, so let's just go right to the interview with Chris Sells. And now I'd like to welcome back to the show an old friend of .NET Rocks, one of our first guests on the show. And uh, it's good to have you back, Chris Sells. Now you're a program manager on the Oslo team. Is that right? Well, that's right. And, in fact, I have been that way for about four years now, although it's only recently that um, we've... uh, Gone with the Oslo name. Yeah, it seems like every time you've been on the show in the last four years, uh, and we asked you what you're working on, you'd say, I can't say anything. <laughs> well, I mean, we were kind of saving up for the PDC, which we just had. So I can tell you everything now. Yeah, and, and you're going to need to, because after that last show we did with Don Box and Doug Purdy, people were calling it the 20 questions show, you know, the, the mystery show. Uh, <laughs> it really didn't get a whole lot of... Of answers about what what it was. Funny all about. part is that we there were some folks who liked that show, but I realized that most of those folks already knew about Oslo. Yeah, yeah. Well, I'm happy to tell you whatever you wanted here. Yeah. No, back up. Sorry, I'll tell you the truth, but I'm happy to answer any of your questions. Okay. Okay. Good enough. Well, uh, if you weren't at the PDC and you have heard the term Oslo, and maybe you uh, listened to the show with Don Box and Doug Purdy. We still don't have a clear idea as to, I mean, we know what we know. Here's what we know from that show. We know that it's all about uh, domain-specific languages. We know that there's a new language, uh, at least one. We know that there is a schema, uh, M schema language or something along those lines. There's the M language. We also know that there's a designer and we know that there's a way to import data with English words uh, or something like that. And that's about all we know from the last show. Really? That's funny, because we said uh, quite a lot more than that. Oh, at um, the PDC, yeah. Uh, at the PDC. So really, so Oslo is the name, the new name for the thing I've been literally doing for the last, I don't know, almost four years at Microsoft. Yeah. Um, which has been... The idea that um, we can get uh, considerable productivity by formalizing, uh, formalizing an idea and generalizing an idea of, for something that we do all the time already, which is um, writing down what we know about our system and um, using um, interpreters, runtime frameworks, whatever you want to call it, to interpret that data and to do something useful and interesting for us. Uh, for example, let me give you uh, something that uh, I was working on um, the last week, in fact. Um, I don't know if you guys have ever built uh, a setup. A setup? Yeah, like I mean, sure. an MSI file. Yeah. So an MSI file is, is a combination of a declarative um, metadata that says, here's how I want things to be when I'm done with the setup, when we've executed the setup and the user has chosen options. Here's how I would like it to appear. Uh, in the environment, wherever the environment is I'm installing when I'm done. And here's uh, the files and the resources and the bitmaps and whatever to make all that happen. Um, and then you pack all that up into a, an MSI file, and you stick that on somebody's machine, and they execute it with the MSI interpreter that ships on modern copies of Windows. And that interpreter reads that data, 
and then does whatever it needs to do to make the environment that you described happen. Now, of course, define it in terms of declaratively, here's what I want of my environment when I'm done. The uh, interpreter, of course, has to translate that into step-by-step. Well, we don't care what it does to make that happen. All we care is, here's what we want when we're done. And so that kind of thing, that kind of pattern of, let me just tell you what I want and make it happen, happens over and over in software and more and more lately. For example, Don likes to tell the story of the, the console bit, right? If you, if you flip a bit on a Win32 executable um, that says, I want a console app, the shell, when it launches you, gives you a console window and hooks it up to your app, and you do console.writeline or printf or whatever you're using, and it appears on that console window without you having to do anything else, right? That's a very early form of a declarative programming where you just say, bang, I want this environment to happen, mm-hmm. and I'll assume it is, and it'll mm-hmm. be provided um, by the environment around me. Now, that one is very small, but we've been building on that idea again and again, over and over again, until we have, like, the MSI thing I just talked about. We've got WPF, which uses XAML to say, here's what I want my UI to look like, and here's how I want my animations to look like, and here's how I want, you know, if I hover over this button, here's what I want the styles to change, and uh, WPF does the work, or workflow, right, in, in XAML. Um, here's how I want to transition um, from activity to activity. Um, and, and by the way, I'm describing it in this form so that you can do things like put me on hold, serialize me to the disk, go away for a year, come back, and continue executing as if I'd always been running in memory, right? And we have the, the uh, WF framework that interprets that data and provides that environment. Um, trans, uh, com plus, uh, transactional com, right? I mean, we, we have been um, doing this kind of declaratively saying uh, to the various runtimes that we're building, um, here's what I want, and then we just trust you to make it happen for a long time. And the idea of Oslo is that we can take that idea and build a set of very powerful general purpose uh, tools around it and languages and let us do it in a general purpose way so that we can uh, have our developers understand how to do that in one way and we get the languages and the tools and the experience and the education that we can then take from project to project, even if we're doing something as different as console apps or workflows or, you know, rich client GUIs or web GUIs or whatever we're doing, we have that same set of tools and experience and knowledge to build our uh, applications. So essentially how this relates to Oslo is you're allowing the developer to build a runtime so we, we allow the developer to do a lot of things with Oslo. There's actually quite a lot in the package. Oslo is three things primarily. It's um, a language, or really a family of languages, which we call M, and that breaks down into three pieces, M graph, M schema, and M grammar. Yeah. It's um, a, a tool, which is a quadrant for um, creating um, instances of, of data that we describe with M, and, um, or editing, viewing data, think of it as, um, you know, a really powerful uh, data manipulation environment and with all kinds of different views and extensible, so you can add your own views. And then the thing that holds it together, the linchpin, is this thing called the repository, which is uh, a set of services and um, database schema built inside, in, on top of SQL schema, or SQL Server 2008. 
So, yeah. you know, when you install the repository, it expects SQL Server to already be running, and it creates an instance of the database, and it installs the, the triggers and the functions and the tables and the instance data. That is assumed um, to be there when you start describing data with M and pushing it into the SQL uh, database, um, the bunch of the features that you get when you when you get SQL out of M are built on the repository. So there's and, a there's a lot. And just a, a f- fundamentally here, um, just for, for trying to grok, grok this, you're really allowing developers to build their own uh, DSLs, external DSLs. Is that right? Yeah. Yeah. So so here's the thing. So M, one of the pieces of M is this idea of a general purpose data definition language. So I can walk up to M and I say, I've got a person which has a name and an age, and an age is an integer of value less than 100, and the name is, you know, characters of, of length whatever, and um, a and, uh, person has relationships to other people, and et cetera, right? I can model whatever domain, whatever universe I want to. I can describe it. And this is M now schema, right? M, M schema. Yeah. Okay? That's what I use M schema for. Now... I have two ways that I can populate um, instances of, let's, let's say that um, I wanted to track uh, instances of the .NET show, right? Mm-hmm. So when, you, when you're posting stuff about the .NET show, right, you've got a title and you've got a description, and I know you've got a set of related links, mm-hmm. and I don't know, I mean, what else do you use? Yeah, no, that's it. it. We have guests yeah, okay. and we have sponsors and shows, and yeah, okay. they all yeah, go together. So you've got data that you're keeping track of. And so you could walk up to M and use M the language and say M.net show, or I'm sorry, type.net show, and then it's got, you know, a title and a description and a set of sponsors. And and you and then what's a sponsor? Well, a sponsor is a name and a contact piece of information. Well, what's contact information, et cetera, right? You and could model as much of that universe as you wanted in M, in M schema. And you could think of this as sort of XML-like schema. I mean, it's essentially... Well, it's, it's it's actually it's schema in the sense of um, uh, yeah I mean you can think of it as XML it's structural right. meaning we care about the data and the form that the data takes yeah. this is not an object oriented type system sure it's a structural text type system yep um, okay so we use M schema to define the various types in our universe yeah. and extents right storage where do we keep things mm-hmm. and then we can use um, M graph to say, oh, and now I've got an instance of the .NET show, right? Chris Sells was on this show, and it's show number whatever it is, and here are the sponsors, and here's the description, and, you know, um, Scott Hanselman was on this other show, and we can we can use the M instance uh, language to be able to, to say these are instances of data that go with these types. And it, okay. during one of Doug Purdy's demos, I think this is where he did something with like CDs and albums and artists and that kind of stuff. And he said something like, you know, CD name is by artist and I like it, you know, and then he translated like a sentence into data. Yeah. Is that what MGraph okay. does? So MGraph is the built-in generic instance syntax that works with any set of types you build in M. Okay. It's the generic kind. It's like kind of, you could think of it as um, the C sharp, um, initialization syntax, right? It's okay. kind of like that. It works with, like C Sharp, it's general purpose. It works with any M types. Now, the thing that Doug was talking about is something that you can create with something called M Grammar. Oh, and M Grammar allows you to say, for a set of related types, 
you know what? I want to provide a rich text experience for them for, uh, to program against this set of types to create instances in the database for this set of types. Mm-hmm. Um, I want normal people to be able to think about what they think about, right? Like, I have a CD, you yeah. know, by whoever, titled whatever, and right. I like it, right? Yeah. Show or, 378 uh, yeah. is yeah. with Miguel Castro, and he talked about blah, blah, blah. Yeah, exactly yeah. right. So that you could then build a grammar around that said, well, you know, I've got this keyword show, and I've got keyword is, and I've got this keyword this other thing, and then I can pull out the data, and I can build a grammar that parses that data and detects errors so that we can report the errors back to the user that they didn't format the data properly, even though we're building it, we're building a language specifically to make it easy for them. That doesn't mean they're going to do it perfectly sure, every time. Sure. So based on that grammar, we provide a grammar-aware uh, tool set. So, for example, you can load the grammar into a, a program we call IntelliPad, which is a free um, uh, component-based editor that we yeah. ship in the ISO SDK. And you can load the grammar into IntelliPad, and you can say, now I want this document to be instances of this grammar. Yeah. And IntelliPad will actually not only give us on-the-fly error reporting when they did it, but it will do it in a, you know, like IntelliSense. Every custom grammar can have IntelliSense in IntelliPad. So now as I type along, I can have statement completion, and I can have the red squigglies. You know, from a, a, a developer point of view, it's very much like, you know, typing in code to... Visual Studio, but right. it works for any language that you define. From a business analyst point of view, it's like a really smart word processor that understands the specific data that you're giving it and gives you red squigglies when you get it wrong. That's interesting. And and this is really for inputting data, right? It's like a data yeah, entry so, thing? So, well, you could, so mGrammar is kind of general purpose, right? General if, purpose. if you've ever built a, a, a lexer or a parser, a, lang- a custom little language yourself, mGrammar is general purpose, meaning you can parse whatever stream of text you want and you will get back out an abstract uh, symbol tree, which is really just a fancy name for the object model that des- that describes all of the parsed data that oh. we pulled in from the text file. Okay. Right? What you do with that is up to you, is what you're saying. What you well, what, what I'm saying is, you know, step one is out of the box. It's you know, if you're if you've written compilers before, it's it's a lexer and a, and a and a parser, right, built into one language, right. So if you're familiar with those tools, mGrammar does all of that. However. Because it's part of the M family of languages, one of the things that it, you can use it to do, and that this is um, you know a much simpler thing if this is what you want to do, um, instead of writing C sharp code to parse that abstract symbol tree and then put records in the database or execute it at runtime or whatever you're going to do, like whatever a classic compiler would do, you can actually in the grammar file say, oh, and by the way, this element in M grammar actually produces this set of M in, uh, M um, graph instances. So you can use it as a way, instead of making people type in M instances, uh, M, M graph instances, to get data into the database, you can actually give them a little language, but it's also easier for the guy building the language because he can just translate that little languages into M graph instances and then have those go into the database. So you don't actually have to write any C-sharp code to parse a set of um, text, a random set of text provided by the user, into a set of instances in the database. You can do that all declaratively with the M family of languages. So would we be deploying that capability out to the to the user that they would just routinely be adding data through this mechanism? So the way we hope it will work, um, uh, I mean, the way we plan is that we can have... Uh, so Quadrant, remember, I was talking about the ability to manipulate data instances. So imagine the life cycle here now where I can say... 
um, okay, I've got this set of types that I've defined in M, and I've used that M to create a database in SQL Server that will hold instances of those types. And then once I have that, I can fire up Quadrant, and I can go to those tables, and I can have um, the rich set of default views that, that Quadrant comes with, and I can add instances and edit instances and delete instances of that data in those tables, right? So um, uh, think of it as a really friendly SQL Server management studio if you right, want. Right. You don't have to type yeah. insert. You, right, you can just point and click and type and choose from drop-downs and press checkboxes and, you know, that kind of thing. Or, and you can flip between various views. I want to see my data in a tree view. I want to see my data in a table view. I want to see my data in a property browser view. I want to see my data in a graph view, right? Those are the kinds of things that we built in, right? Um, but you can also then, the idea is, as you, you can, in addition to flipping between graphical views, you can flip between textual views as well. So I can walk up to my data and say, well, let me see how that looks like in text. Oh, well, this is the set of text that, you know, is my, set of .NET shows. Well, let me just edit that one on line three, and let me go add another one on the bottom, and, you know, let me have that rich text experience, just like I was a programmer, or just like I was an advanced IT person, or advanced business analyst. I can do all of the ideas that I can do all of that in Quadrant, and I can see it as my M instances. I can see it as um, my DSL language. I could see it as maybe XAML or some kind of XML format, right? I can imagine a bunch of rich text views in Quadrant in the exact same way that I can imagine a bunch of rich, rich graphical views. Now, in the PDC bits, we don't have that. Um, but even if we, and we, you know, well, I'm not making any promises for dates or releases, but right now you can already do that kind of thing in IntelliPad, hmm. right, in the shipping bits. Okay, so the M grammar is what you use to create your DSL, essentially. Yes. Yeah. And the language and the language services that go along with the DSL as well. And and Quadrant, we should also say, I don't know if we emphasize this, but it is a GUI, right? Quadrant is a GUI. It's meant for um, uh, the PDC bits right now. Are, it's very much, you know, I point here, I click there, I see my list of, of uh, types in the database, I can see the instances in, in the tables, right? I, I mean, we're working live against a copy of the database, and I can edit and add and delete instances just the way I would expect. And I can switch between views to see my data in whatever way is convenient for me. And also, um, uh, Quadrant is extensible. So in the exact same way that, you know, I can extend the M family of languages with M grammar and build my own textual DSLs that lets me type in data or lets my users type in data in whatever way is convenient for them, the idea is with Quadrant is I can configure together a bunch of the basic views and build more complicated views and associate those richer views with specific kinds of data so that I can tailor the data editing experience inside of Quadrant anytime the user goes and edits those types. Now, would you also use um, the IntelliPad? I guess IntelliPad is sort of this interactive uh, thing that you're talking about. Would you also use that to query the system, to just ask like a regular English language question and, and get some sort of detailed data out of that? So right now, the query language of um, data in the repository is, well, any kind of uh, language, if you want to program against the repository, is all query-based. So if you do it inside of Quadrant, when you're configuring things, you're absolutely writing queries to be able to pull out bits and pieces if you're, if you're customizing Quadrant. If you're um, writing C-sharp programs against it, right, you're writing SQL statements because the data is kept in a SQL database, mm -hmm. and you can use whatever... 
SQL data access technology happens to make you happy. That's totally fine. It's just SQL. The types, we try to map the types from M to SQL in the most natural way possible. So in other words, you, tr- you translate the, 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 langu- the, the more natural English kind of language that they type query into an object graph and then hand that to you, and then you can query SQL Server from that. Is that what you're saying? Well, so what I'm saying is in the M schema is a language for defining types, and mm-hmm. we have a mapping from that to SQL. Mm-hmm. So when, when you type the word type and you know define a type in M, that translates into a create table statement mm-hmm. in SQL. Mm-hmm. Okay, And we have tools for doing that translation and, and deploying those types into um, the repository, into the SQL database. When you type, um, when you type M instance, when you, when you create instances of data in M, in the M graphs uh, syntax, mm-hmm. those translate into SQL insert statements. Mm-hmm. When you build uh, a calculated value in M, those translate um, uh, mostly into um, custom views in SQL mm-hmm. so that you can write your programs and get the, the data out by just accessing the views. Mm. Um, when you do something with M grammar and you create M instances, ultimately those also translate into SQL insert statement. Well, I'm looking more for the select statements. Like, if I, could I walk up to it and say, who was the guest in show number 29? So we provide no natural language processing that turns... Um, uh, you know, English into SQL select statements. But I guess if you had, yeah, and this is what I was getting at, if you had the M grammar elements, you know, who... You could totally use M grammar to build a natural language processor to create SQL statements. Absolutely. SQL select statements. And in fact, uh, I think that would be an excellent way for some enterprising third-party developer to stretch the platform and tell us what they think. Yeah, I remember, I don't know, Richard, do you remember this computer database inventory program called Q&A? Yeah. On DOS, but I and, and and I think SQL 2000 had a natural language processor. Like there's there's been a number of efforts in this area over yeah. time. But uh, so and so far, a lot of the stuff you're saying, Chris, it sounds very SQL Server centric. Yeah. Oh, absolutely. I mean, uh, the the we we absolutely. I mean, we love SQL Server in, in CST. It is a fabulous environment for um, storing and manipulating data, and it has all kinds of wonderful. Scalability, um, versioning, security, uh, globalization. I mean, it's got just a ton of these great features, right? Uptime, and they've been tuning it forever, and it just automatically, you know, tunes itself over time. And SQL Server is a wonderful in, uh, data environment. Um, and so we wanted to build a set of tools that allow people to think in more abstract terms. Um, so we built M and the set of tools. Uh, but our set of tools are around creating M types, which translate into SQL tables, creating M values, which translate into SQL data, creating uh, DSLs so that you can more easily create M values that translate into SQL data, and providing um, a set of uh, additional features called the repository on top of SQL Server, and then building Quadrant to uh, provide a visual view on top of that data, all in SQL Server. So, yes. We love SQL Server, and we have built <laughs> repository and Quadrant and uh, M around SQL Server. This portion of .NET Rocks is brought to you by our good friends at Telerik, who bring you this special message. What's more important for your web applications? High performance on the server or on the client? How about footprint, number of server requests? 
There are so many potential bottlenecks that can drag your application performance, and of course, there is no universal solution for them. The good news is the guys from Telerik understand the complexity of that problem. When building their UI components, they isolate every probable source of performance loss. Then they apply a respective solution for different products, different scenarios, and even different browsers. The techniques vary dramatically. As a result, you, the developer, receive out-of-the-box, highly reliable components that are optimized in every aspect of their behavior. I'm sure you'll be interested to learn more about the various performance-boosting techniques for web applications. Just go to telerik.com slash top performance for details and live demos. What I'm getting at here also is for things that aren't necessarily dealing with data but dealing with objects, you're... You, when you're using IntelliPad, your your code is getting called right from the from the parser, and I guess you like you say it passes an object graph uh, in to your code so that you know exactly what this person is trying to do. So if you um, you can absolutely extend uh, IntelliPad with custom code and do all kinds of wonderful things. IntelliPad is yeah extensible, but the point. You think that well, one of the big points of, of M grammar is to be able to do it all declaratively and get yourself a set of M instances without writing any C sharp code at all. Now that's not to say that M grammar couldn't also be used to build full featured, you know, language compilers. And in fact we've done some of that internally and we think it's a fabulous tool. In fact as a way to test, we built some real compilers that we were using for a while. And so um we worked hard to make sure M grammar is a real tool for building compilers, but we also made sure that it worked really well for generating M, which is one of the things we think it will be used for. Um, and also, M, because it is a general purpose data definition language, we have provided out of the box SQL server uh, gen- code generation mm-hmm. to translate M into SQL. Mm-hmm. But all of the object model that just, I mean, the whole compiler, the, the, the bit of our code that parses M and, and uh, hands it up, as an object model, right before we generate the SQL, you can have access to. So if you want to just take the M and interpret it at runtime and do whatever you want with it or use it to generate code or use it to generate XML or use it to generate whatever you want to, all of that is available to you as well. So you don't have to just generate SQL with it. And your users never have to go out to the command line and compile anything, right? I mean, they're... Well, so we have... um, I mean, we do definitely do in the SDK... Um, this is definitely a 1.0 SDK, just like the .NET 1.0 SDK. Um, we have a, a full set of command line tools for compiling M at the command line, compiling M grammar at the command line, you know, generating SQL script, generating something we call M images, deploying SQL yeah. or deploying M images into the repository, right? All of that is available from the command line. We've also built a set of language services and build tools and projects, project templates that plug into Visual Studio 2008 and Dev10 so that you can do it all inside of um, uh, Visual Studio. We've also built um, a set of um, extension commands to IntelliPad, so that you can have that whole life cycle of, uh, you know, build, deploy uh, inside of IntelliPad as well. So yeah. um, the idea is that you, you can do it all from the command line if you want to, but our two main tools that we're targeting, you don't have to do it from the command line. So IntelliPad and Quadrant really are what the users are going to, the end users are going to use, and they don't have to do any... They don't have to go down there. I see um, most of our end users spending most of their time in Quadrant. Quadrant, I think of IntelliPad as a developer-centric tool. Okay.
So we're not building our own UIs here. It's basically being provided for us. The idea is that you can um, have a set of data that you package, and your users can use Quadrant to get that set of data, along with all the other set of data that they can get. And um, to, you, Quadrant is, is extensible, customizable, so that you can build richer views on top of your specific data and give them better experiences. And, of course, it's all hooking into your components in the middle tier, so... Um, so that, that's really what ends up executing in the end. Actually, I don't know what that means. We quadrant goes really? directly against SQL server. Really? So, so, hmm, let's say I have a, let's say I already have a rich business model. You know, I've got a, a middle tier model that describes my application and lets me do everything in my application that I want to do. And I want the, Sorry. Then you're all done. Ship it. I'm all done. Ship what, it. What do you need me for? Hmm. Good question. <laughs> but I, I guess this is the point is that this is a new way of approaching this. We're probably not going to take an existing app. Well, yeah. so, build something um, new. I can see, you know, absolutely a bunch of ways that I could start using this technology in my existing apps and get better apps by extending um, my apps with this technology. But I can also see this as a... Um, you know, I've already got my schema in mm-hmm. my database, and I right. just want to point Quadrant at the existing database. I guess right? what I'm so saying that, is, where's the where's the point at which uh, business rules are processed? So the point at which business rules are processed is um, not part of M. M does not have behavior. M is only structural type. It's not an object-oriented system. The only behavior that you can define is in M is something called a calculated value, which is essentially a select statement. And you can't hook your own assemblies in in the process. Not into in, well. I mean, as I say, what we out of the box do is we take M and we generate SQL. Mm-hmm. So that is just about defining. This is the data definition language. Now, of course, you can build your own custom triggers and plug them into SQL. You can build your own custom SQL and plug them into SQL. You can write your .NET programs that access the data in the SQL that do whatever you like. Um, and like I say, M grammar can be used to do whatever you like. If you're talking about, um, uh, your existing, uh, .NET object model that accesses the data, that means you've already got a data layer. Sure. You've already done the mapping between I'm really concerned about the business layer. I'm, I'm concerned about, uh, business rules. So, so what uh-huh. I would like to, what I would like to see is, you know, somebody typing in an English uh, sentence to do something with your system, whatever that is, that might not necessarily be all about data, but it might be about about rules. I, I love the idea of, and of course, we didn't invite, we invent this idea on this phone call, right? Of, of natural language processing of um, that, that that produces queries over your data, right? Yeah. I mean, that's a, that we should we want that absolutely. Mm-hmm. We haven't we haven't built that, but M Grammar provides you exa- uh, absolutely the way to to do that. Okay. Um, but if you're talking about general purpose business rules, now let me or just the even, conversation up one layer in the yeah, architecture. Yeah, sure. So, so we have built a set of tools for doing model-driven stuff at the bottom. But kind of, you can think of us as we've built XAML and the tools that go with XAML. Mm-hmm. We haven't built WPF, right? Yeah. WPF uses XAML to drive it, right? But WPF is the app. I want GUIs, right? I want I want the runtime. I want the thing that comes out of it. 
So one of the runtimes was built. This is the thing that actually, if you would prefer to write your database in M as opposed to SQL, we've provided the runtime to make that happen. Other runtimes that we've built are we have other teams inside of Microsoft that are building their technologies on top of Oslo. For example, you can use Quadrant, and inside of Quadrant is uh, an entire workflow designer. So you can design an entire workflow, which, of course, is one way to, incl- uh, to encode business rules. You can put an entire workflow with drag and drop inside of Quadrant, and that will just show up as data in the database. And the uh, WF40 runtime can then pull that data out of the database and execute it, just like it's a regular uh, workflow design in code or designed in in ML. So I guess I guess uh, what I'm what I'm not getting, and maybe I got my answer. Uh, just want to clarify that we can't um, we can't hook uh, a .NET assembly, so I can't get control after the M grammar uh, after M after M has parsed input from the user, whether it's from Quadrant or whether it's from IntelliPad or whatever, I can't. I, I really can't get control of their intent. Oh, you, you, you absolutely can. You can, oh, you can build a program in M Grammar that calls your C-sharp code and does whatever you want. Absolutely. You okay. can absolutely do that. And, in fact, if you built the M Grammar that generated, that took natural language and generating, generated a SQL statement, you could write your program that um, executed that SQL statement and provided the results. You could totally do that with M Grammar today. Okay. You wouldn't be doing it inside of Quadrant. No, because no. We don't have that level of extensibility in Quadrant yet, but you could totally write that program. Okay. Yeah, I'm just thinking, and and I think I get where you're going here, Carlos. Again, is I have an existing app. There's pieces of it that have to be run certain ways. Or maybe uh, I don't. Maybe I'm building it, but uh, there's stuff that... There's stuff that I need to hook because I want to process some rules. Right. Yeah. So just ways to get into what we've already got. Yeah. Yeah. What you're saying is you want a, uh, you want to extend Quadrant with custom C Sharp code. Yeah, exactly. Or VBNet, uh, for that matter. Oh, uh, sorry. I, did I say C Sharp? <laughs> I absolutely meant Visual Basic. What was I thinking? <laughs> <laughs> or F Sharp. Of course. Yeah, I I understand that, and I agree with you. We I want that too. Yeah, okay. I'm just Chris. Maybe we just take a step back here. Why would we do this? What is this really getting us? So the idea, the hope is, right. I mean, think about this today, right? The reason people, the reason I was building setups with MSI in a declarative way is because I could do that quicker and more easily, and more readable, and more maintainably by using a declarative format for my data and letting a runtime figure out how to do it, hmm. r- rather than writing a setup in the first do this, then do that, then copy this here, then check for this registry key, then, you know, I don't. I can be more productive by being declarative and let the runtime figuring it out. In the exact same way that I can use XAML today to lay out my UI and let WPF figure out how to render it, I can use XAML to lay out my workflow and let um, the WF framework figure out how to execute it and provide the features it provides, hmm. right? The reason to do this is to be more productive and to produce artifacts that are more transparent and you can do more things with. For example, let me give you an example of a little toy that I have been playing with. Okay. Um, I have built a command line parser about six times. And I've done it in various ways. Um, one of the most handy, if you're a C-sharp programmer, is um, 
you know, I built a little command line processor that just takes a class and uses that as the definition of the command line. And then you can put C-sharp attributes uh, on the various members of the class and, and uh, control how the parser does its work, right? And so that's handy for um, um, building the parser. And all of that information is available in IL, right? Um, and so if I want to do something else with that data, that's a tough data format to parse. For example, so here's the, um, here's the thing that I've always wanted to do. I want to be able to, I, you know how you have like proxy generators for, um, uh, web services and for RPC calls sure, and for, right. you know, ecom, right? I really want to be able to walk up to an executable, pull out the metadata that describes the command line, and build a client-side proxy. So I don't have to call process.start. I can just create an instance of this proxy, set the parameters, those turn into command line arguments, I can execute the damn thing, and then just get back the output and continue on with my day, right? Yeah. But every time I want to reuse a command line program in one of my new programs, I have to do process.start. I have to hook up the console output right. I have to remember how to say, do I want to show the console window? Do I not want to show the console window right? I have to do this with process.start. I want to just walk up to a thing and have a, have a client proxy generator for my command line arguments, right? Or I want to be able to take the metadata from my command line, and I want to be able to do queries across all the command lines that I'm shipping across my group or my division and make sure that the same command line switches across my tools have the same name and they have the same description so that people can reuse knowledge as they go from tool to tool. Also, I want to be able to take extract the data for those command line arguments and hand them off to somebody who can do naturalization and localization, right? So uh, I can make my command line programs global. Um, I want to be able to do all this with rich metadata that describes my simple little thing, right? A command line parser, right? And I want to reuse it in a bunch of different ways. And who knows? Maybe I'll think about a different way that I want to reuse it tomorrow. Right. So by defining the the actors in the play, if you will, and uh, and and creating a little grammar for you to do things with, it, it, when you go to do something new, you're using the language uh, a more powerful, a, lo- a lot higher level language that's specific. Higher to level what language you're that allows me higher transparency. That allows has a set of tools to allow me to author instances of the language that allows me tools for um, query and access to that data. And, hey, um, so right now if I wanted to find a command line, but I have a C-sharp class or, or a set of function calls I call or whatever I do, um, and then out comes a usage. What if I wanted to build a DSL where I just typed in the usage for my command line and it would do everything. Um, that would yeah. be enough to generate the thing that actually did the parsing. Why do I have to give it any more than the usage? The usage has everything in it, and I could just keep type- typing the usage until I'm happy. All right, I get that. Right, and then use, use M grammar to parse the usage to figure out what the parser should do. So it's really good for when you have lots of things that you want to do with your data that you don't necessarily know what it's going to be up front. Right, and, and of course... I don't know about you, but... That's pretty much everything, yeah. Yeah, exactly right. That's exactly right. Oh, I have all of this data, but it's encapsulated in a format that I can't get. So now I have to somehow duplicate the data so that I can do what I want with it. 
Well, it's also so it feels like we don't have to be that organized. We don't have to make a huge, long plan for all of this. We sit down and just start creating the bits we understand and, and let them glue, them glue themselves together over time. Yeah, exactly right. I mean, the, the idea is that you come across, we build little languages all the time, um, and then we build little ad hoc parsers for them, and then they're, they don't work very well, and we don't have any good debugging tools or development tools, and we certainly don't have IntelliSense support or language services. Um, and so they either are just orphaned and terrible and ugly and hard to use because they're not fully featured like we'd like them to be, or we avoid using them altogether and we make our users type, um, you know, in in general purpose languages that are robust and do have tools, but the general purpose languages are so much, well, Doug used a, a phrase in your interview that I really loved, right? Ceremony versus essence, right? We're using general purpose languages um, to do specific tasks. And for any one specific task, there's a lot of ceremony that you set up, right? A lot of class this and public that and static the other thing and void over here, where I really just want to say, you know what? Mm. I've got uh, an episode uh, 103 of the .NET show, and Scott was the guest, and that's all I want to say. Yeah. And please let me just say that. And don't make me say all the other stuff. Right. And so you're, so these are, can you also create internal DSLs? And I guess maybe what we should do is just explain the difference and external being something that is a, a complete environment and in a complete language and an internal being one that hooks into say C sharp or VBnet. Can you do oh, those I as see. well? So the idea is you want to be able to build, extend one of the existing languages with your own stuff. Right. That's not what Oslo is about, is it? Well, I mean, it is if you first start with, uh, you know, the C-sharp 3.5 compiler grammar and then go ahead and add stuff into it. And we yeah. haven't shipped any of those grammars right. for you to start with, but I would, you know, that would be fun to see somebody build one, although it would be hard. It does sound like a future thing. Yeah. It does seem like something that would come in this scenario. Well, I mean, so now the question is, yeah, so for me, that makes me scared. Yeah. Right, because now you're talking about oh, Anders didn't put the one feature in C sharp that's going to make it perfect. So now what I'll do is I'll take uh, the C sharp grammar that ships with Oslo, and I'm not making any promises or even saying that we should do no, that. No, no, no. You're conjecturing. Uh, yeah. Yes. Uh, this is hy hy uh, hypothesis. Hi uh, hypothetical. Hypothetical. Yeah. Yes. Thank you. I'm not very good with the whole English language thing. So <laughs> hypothetically, if we did such a thing now, um, we could have the. Uh, uh, .NET rocks version of C-sharp that adds the one feature that Carl thinks is missing from C-sharp that keeps him locked away in Visual Basic because he can't live without it. But if he had this one feature, and great, now he writes programs and it works on his compiler, oh, until there's a new version, oh, until he sends his program to somebody else. Yeah. I mean, the idea that we would make a, a language just like the, double, the, the, single, the general purpose language but add the one or two little things that we need to make it truly perfect. I just scares me. Well, I you know, like and it's idea. called writing methods and objects. You know, that's basically that how too. we extend. Whereas, I mean, is it better to be able to take C sharp and extend it with one or two features that'll make it truly perfect, or do we really want to focus on the language that allows us to boil it down to the essence of the thing we want to say and leave aside right. the ceremony? And I think that's what you're getting at. Yeah. 
Yeah, I, you know what? I could see this happening. It doesn't make it good. I just I could see it happening that uh, that people. It's you know the whole ugly UI thing that people go nuts with a new tool. Mm. Yeah, Microsoft well, I mean, always gives us enough rope to hang ourselves with. Even if we did ship the C sharp grammar or the VB grammar or the J script grammar, whatever, right? Whatever grammars we might ship. Um, I think we would do it mostly for educational purposes. I wouldn't think that we would do it as a way for you to base the next version of C-sharp that will finally add the last three features that we need. People are going nuts with the languages these days. I don't know. Yeah. <laughs> I know. They are, actually. They've been doing a ton of... Um, it's amazing. Ever since the DSL, I must have seen half a dozen or a dozen people building languages. They're going nuts over yeah. grammar. They yeah. love it. You know, early on, you were talking about how uh, we do declarative transactions now, and we don't even know really how those transactions are implemented on the back end. Right. And in fact, depending on who's involved, um, uh, the transaction could be implemented in memory, or it could be implemented across 27 different machines. Right. right. We don't know. All we know we is we don't know. And, and really, we don't care. We just want the transaction to work and all roll back if it, if it doesn't work out. Right. So I'm trying to picture that kind of capability with Oslo. Like that, now I start thinking about how do I get to cloud computing with this technology? How do I scale it? I'm trying to think about scaling options. How big does this go? Well, so the beauty of declaratively saying, here's what I want to happen, but not how I want it to happen, right? The beauty of the difference between declarative and imperative is with a declarative uh, environment, you can, the environment itself can give you value without you doing a thing. Right. Right. It can scale out your stuff, right? It can add new, uh, it can be extensible when it comes to who's going to be uh, handling transactions, right? I mean, it can add all these capabilities. For example, you know, XAML and WPF. As WPF gets more and more hardware accelerating acceleration because DirectX 27 gets more and more hardware acceleration, the WPF app that I ran, that I wrote will just get faster and better, and I don't have to do a thing about it. Right, because WPF, the runtime, can just take advantage of these new features and change underneath me, still interpreting the exact same XAML that's bundled into the app. Right. And then that, I guess that's what I'm getting at, is the idea that one of the strengths of using this technology will be all of those potential deployment options, all those potential scaling options. Right. And this is the, these are the benefits. These are the productivity benefits we've been getting from declarative-style programming right hmm. along. Hmm. And in fact... Oslo is not a new idea, right? Oslo is a general-purpose platform for doing that kind of thing on which other people are building runtimes, right? We can declare workflows in the repository, and we have a runtime that can pull those out of the repository. We can define entire web services um, uh, in the repository. And, in fact, we can build, build and deploy with the PDC bits. You can go to Quadrant. You can say, I want a new web service. I, and I want to implement that web service with a workflow. You can do it all inside of um, the repository. It all turns into SQL data, and you can actually deploy that and get a working web service endpoint without writing a line of code. Huh. Right? Those are runtimes that we're building on top of the general-purpose Oslo platform today. Wow. So, Chris, do you really think that we're that Oslo ends up being something that we don't need developers anymore for like the, you, you've mentioned a few times sort of the business analyst expert, those sorts of folks. Is that really where we're headed with this? So Doug, oh, so let me, let me answer that question very simply. No. 
Okay, now let me answer okay, it a little you. more complicatedly. <laughs> um, uh, of course, I'm biased, right? I'm a programmer. Um, I agree with you, Chris. Yeah, okay. So um, there is this enormous backlog of uh, applications, line-of-business applications, that businesses are dying for so that they can run their businesses uh, better, cheaper, faster, and so that they can add more services to their businesses so they can get more customers and more money, right? The problem isn't that we um, uh, have, you know, really complicated applications to build, although that is part of the problem. The problem is that we have too damn many of them to build, and we don't have enough people to do them. Hmm. So the 10x productivity isn't about letting, you know, um, programmers go home at 5, although that would be handy, that would be nice. It's about letting them build more of these apps and build more features into their apps than they have time to build today. And about letting them build them a way that is more transparent and more maintainable and more robust so they spend less time thinking about the infrastructure and more time thinking about the thing they actually, problem they actually want to solve in their business so that they can have, make customers happy so that they can make money for themselves and for their shareholders, right? That's what we're trying to enable. Is it fair to say that, uh, in, is it fair to say that once you create the M schema and, you know, your, your data and give the, you know, uh, create an M grammar for somebody to do things easily, is it, would, would you then just hand off the, that, all of that to the business guy and say, here, use this tool to go to town and do whatever you need, and and then the developer isn't needed anymore. Or, or is it an, uh, or is it? Are you still developing for yourself as a developer? So one of the things that I think the ways I like to think about this is the beauty of the way we uh, we built XAML and WPF. I have you know I have a love of WPF, as you know. Yeah. Um, uh, the beauty of the way we built WPF is we this common uh, project system. Uh, the MS Build project system that Visual Studio reads and other tools can read, like Expression Blend, right? And we built this um, uh, declarative format for describing UIs that Visual Studio can read and other tools can read, like Expression Blend. And what that means, and we built WPF itself to be hugely powerful so that you can pack just a ton of the definition of the interaction of your UI with the user without writing any code, which means that I can build animations and, and mouse overs and put in graphics and, and do repositioning logic. And I can just build a ton of UI inside of Expression Blend as a, as a designer, graphical designer, without writing a line of code. And I can be checking in and checking out in the exact same source code tree that my developers are working on. And then they can go, oh, and when I press this button, it actually has to do something, you know, with data in the database or with, you know, files in the file system or, or run an algorithm, whatever it has to do. But it's a very natural separation between what the designers do and what the developers can do. And I see M and the family of M languages and Quadrant as that exact same split where I can, as a business person, go into um, IntelliPad and type you know, very simple. Oh, let's see. The, I, let's see. Think of this as a cocktail napkin. Well, I've got a person. Well, a person has a name and age. Oh, and a contact. What's a contact? A contact has a street number and a city and a phone number, right? I can. The syntax is dirt simple, and we've got the language services in IntelliPad, and I don't have to use things like type. I don't have to do any of that. I can just say I've got a name and age, and then you can when the 
business guy is done with as much as he can do, or maybe we have a DSL for workflow, and he can use that and sketch out a business process. Or maybe we have a DSL for web services, and we can do that, and, and, and he can use that, and he can define, you know, what are the operations that we expose from a web service, right? The idea is that with the DSLs and with the simple type system of M, M schema, that the business analyst can go a lot farther than he could and produce an artifact that he can hand off to the developer, and when the developer adds additional information to it, the business analyst can still see the information he provided, meaning this can be a shared artifact that is actually used as part of the runtime of our system, right? We're not talking about drawing uh, figures on the whiteboard and then the manager walks out of the room and the developer erases the whiteboard and goes and translates it into C-sharp. We're talking about the business analysts, the managers, the technical people sitting down and writing down as much as they, as they know about the system and making that piece of information an executable part of the running completed system. And the reason that's interesting and important is because as things go and evolve, you can bring the people that have defined the requirements back into the process and say, well, we had to change it to this and that and this other thing, and we added this feature. But it should still look pretty much like what you had in mind. Is this still right, or did we go off the rails? And the business guy is going to be able to look at that and say, oh, well, I see what you did here. I see where my original stuff was. That change isn't going to work, and let me tell you why. And then they can sit and work on it together and make it work together on a shared artifact that becomes part of the running system. And that's huge. That is huge. You know, I was thinking that sounds almost like a pair programming model to have a dev yes, and yes, a business yes, guy yes. sitting side by side. Yeah. Yes, it, it's peace and harmony. It's it's business and, and developers walking down the beach hand in hand. <laughs> <laughs> All we need is Don Box running around saying Oslo is love. Sounds like a douche commercial. <laughs> Oslo is love. That's exactly what it is. Oh, no. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> By the way, that's just the title of my next blog post. Oslo is love? Oslo is love, baby. <laughs> what do you do when you want to feel fresh? <laughs> well, I mean, that's not the title of my next blog post. That's not right. That's you can tell it's getting late in the just day. That's the image I'm getting. I'm sorry. Wow. He's trying to be a better person. I'll, I'll try. I'll try to be a better person. Um, well, what what haven't we said? Where where? Because this is where obviously very early. Yeah, where, no, 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 not after Oslo. When when it ships? Because obviously the the bits that we have now. You know, things change. Are, are we going to see anything different, or are we just going to see the completed uh, um, the completed vision of what we've been talking about for the last hour? Oh, well, I mean, the vision for it and what actually ships. I mean, we're going to try as hard as we can to get as much of that as in, in as possible. Um, but we're going to do what Microsoft always does, which is make sure that we've got the core scenarios covered, that they're uh, covered in an integrated way, and to end... Uh, from language to tools to runtime, and uh, we're going to cut some features that don't make the quality bar to make sure that we get our product out in a timely manner so that we can get feedback for the next version. Okay, and if you weren't at the PDC and you don't have the bits, where can you go to get them? So you can't, if you weren't at the PDC, the PDC is the only place you could have gotten the current version of Quadrant. Wow. We will have a version of Quadrant out uh, soon for people that didn't go to the PDC. But the PDC is the only place for Quadrant. However, you can get all three of the M languages, M schema, M graph, M uh, grammar, um, IntelliPad, all of the command line tools. You can get the repository 
uh, all of those services, um, and you can build apps with all of those uh, services today um, to try it out and give us feedback. And you can do that by going to mstn.com slash Oslo, mstn.com slash Oslo. And once you're there, we are on uh, that website, and so we're working to make sure that we have fresh samples and content and videos about how to make use of uh, Oslo. Um, we will have the future CTPs, uh, community technology purviews of uh, Oslo up on that website. When Quadrant's available, it will be up on that website. We have a bunch of stuff up there now. We have all the documentation online. We have a bunch of great videos, a bunch of samples. And if you have a question about how to use Oslo and you'd like to talk to the product team, we have a forum where you can ask your questions, and we try very hard to get all of those questions answered as soon as possible um, by real members of the product team. And if you find a bug, we want to know about it, and whether that's bug in functionality or a bug in, you know, a feature is missing or some scenario we haven't covered or whatever it is, we have uh, a connect uh, site so you can log your bug, and those bugs drop directly into the exact same bug database that our product team is using to track all the bugs we already know about internally. Um, and so they're triaged and, and dealt with and responded to in exactly the same way as all of the other bugs in our system. So we have set up what we're hoping is a feedback loop where um, not only are we releasing bits about Oslo and we want you to read about them and use them, but we want to hear what you don't like so we can fix it before we release. Chris Sells, thank you very much. My pleasure. It's been a, a very enlightening talk. Thank you. My pleasure. And we'll see you next time on .NET Rocks. .NET Rocks is recorded and produced by Pwop Productions, providing professional audio, audio mastering, video, post-production, and podcasting services. Online at www.pwop.com. .NET Rocks is a production of Franklin's Net, training developers to work smarter and offering custom on-site classes in Microsoft development technology with expert developers. Online at www.franklins.net. For more .NET Rocks episodes and to subscribe to the podcast feeds, go to our website, at www.dotnetrocks.com. Got a transmitter van.